I'm going to Gracelands. Paul Simon, Memphis, Tennessee. I, it's too low for me. I can't sing it. Hi. Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm in Australia. Yay. In the nation's capital. Well, a lot of people think the nation's capital is Sydney. They do. And it's not, is it? Where is it, Michelle? It's Canberra. Canberra. That's where you are. Canberra. And, you know, we actually have done quite a few things on Canberra in this very podcast. We have. You recently did the Joe Chinque murder. That's right. Which was a Canberra murder. We've done our hometown murders where we both were friends with a murderer. Lots of murders going on in Canberra. Murder, as you like to say. Murder. 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 But we're not doing murder today. Well, no. No. We are not doing murder today. But I just did want to say how beautiful Australia is. I forget. I forget how absolutely gorgeous it is to be here with the sounds of the birds and the magpies singing in the morning and the blue skies and the gum trees everywhere. Oh, it's just lovely. You're painting a I lovely know. picture. It's very different to England because in England we wake up to lovely delicate bird song, twiddly teet, all that kind of like mm. tweet, tweet, poop, 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 whatever. But in Australia it's like, rat, <laughs> Jeffrey, yeah. are you up yet? Go, 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 rat. From 4am onwards, so it's very different. It's almost indicative of the type of, like, the vibe, isn't it? The vibe of Australia compared to the gentleness of the UK and England. No, I I would definitely agree with that. But, no, it's been been great being here. But, um, yeah, no murders. I haven't seen any murders, but the news here is shocking. Is it? What's happening? What isn't happening? There's... All sorts going on. But anyway, oh moving God. right along. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I just had a conversation, a long conversation with my postie who you slammed quite hard last week. I did not slam him. He's a great guy. I was talking about the replacement postie who said, have a nice day or whatever. I can't remember. Are you, telling, are you telling me that he shouldn't have said to me, have a nice day? Bless him. No, I was making a connection between dogs and posties. Right. And then there was something. I and then it went wrong. I, de- I definitely did not mean to slam any kind of postie because posties do a great job. They do. And honestly, it won't be too long before we don't even get posties. Oh, well, I hope that's not they the case. scrap it. Because mm. I had a lovely convo with Dan, the, the hot postie, just now. And when I saw, I said, <laughs> oh, there's Dan to my husband. And he said, oh, I haven't seen him for a while. I said, no. I said, Michelle. Michelle said he was creepy on the podcast. And Patty said, she said he was creepy. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, Michelle's the one who came running out with a, a tit out saying, hi, Dan, last time she was here. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't recall a tit being out. That's all in Patty's imagination. That's just insane. <laughs> it's just what he recollected, Michelle. I, I can't. Do I you do remember what? you saying hello, but I don't remember seeing a tit out. That's because it didn't happen. This is one of Patty's. <laughs> False memories. But the tits are always out, I'd say, in all of his memories. Everyone's naked. <laughs> Including him. I bet he's had a tit out <laughs> down the hot postie. Uh, oh, oh, goodness me. Well, do you know what? I could have. I mean, I don't think I did. Look, these things go free. They come free. Like fly free. They <laughs> do fly free every now and again, especially when you're in a robe. Yes. You can't just have a, a tit fall loose out. Come away. Yeah. <laughs> 
Whoa there. Whoa there. I've got a couple of shout outs I promised to do today. Lovely. We've got Mandy Hughes. Hi, Mandy. Shout. And we've got Vicky <laughs> Henderson. Vicky. Oh, my friend Vicky. Yeah. I didn't know that she listened. Thanks, Vicky. Here we are. Shout outs <laughs> for you ladies. And of course, I'm going to give a shout out to uh, Jenna Hen, who, yes, she she did come out and uh, give a little hello on, over on Patreon if you want to hear did. what Jen actually sounds like. I think I do take the piss when I'm like, Jenna Hen! Because uh, she's actually quite a gently spoken woman, except when she's angry. No. <laughs> so if you want to hear that, guys, go over to Patreon. It's worth a pound a month just for that. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Well, there, there it is, a shot heart. There's our shot. Now, also, a few weeks ago, I think I mentioned to you, we had an, a listener write in. Now, I do know him, so it's not quite fair, but I didn't know he was an eavesdropper. It's Björkven, the Icelandic man who lives in Spain. I did say that I was going to talk about it on Extra Droppings, but I didn't. But I just wanted to touch on it because it's kind of got to do with our stories today. Now, this is a real life episode. And when it comes to real life, it could be anything, couldn't it, Michelle? It is and could be. I don't know why I just said it is. <laughs> yes, it could be anything. <laughs> like it could be, it could be cults. It could be conspiracies because that happens in real life, doesn't it? And it could be secret societies as well. Well, I've got a story for you that ticks two of those boxes. I'm going to meander quite a lot today as well, Michelle. So I'm going to need you to be very patient with me. I don't know. What are you talking about meander? I don't meander. How dare you? I said I am going to be meandering quite a lot today. Yes, I know. But I felt like the implication was that today I'm the meanderer. No, that's not what I said. That's not what I said or what I meant. Good. Bit weird. (laughs) So Björkven, as you know, he popped himself into our inbox. He slid into our DMs, as you like to say. And that's not Dr. Martin Boots, is it? That's something different. I don't even know what that means. Sliding into your DMs. Oh, DMs, Doc Martens. God, I'm so not with it. But yes, it's not Doc Martens. It's your direct messages. Because that's what I used to think it was when you said it. I thought, oh. So it means somebody's in my shoes. That's what I thought it meant. Oh. Yeah. A little bit, there's a little bit of cross-continental confusion going on today, dear eavesdropper. I'm very sorry. <laughs> and also I think it's because I'm still half jet-lagged. My jet lag's just turned into a bad sleeping pattern. So I'm, oh, bless I'm you. really, really not with it. But I'm going to give it a red hot go today. Well done. So going back to Björkman's message that he sent to us, it was regarding the episode, which was about, I don't know the name of the episode. It was the one where we discussed secret societies, Illuminatus in particular. I talked about the Illuminatus Mm. trilogy, which was actually a comedy sci-fi book written by journalists in the 60s. There was two Roberts and a Kerry Thornley who were involved in that. They They were journos. They were that kind of Ken Kesey... All those swinging Timothy Leary, the guy who took all the LSD, that kind of era. I'm trying to build a little bit of a picture here. So they started by writing anonymous letters to publications such as Playboy, telling them that the Illuminati were responsible for making all the decisions in the world and that they were running the world, this global elite, the shadow society. And one of them, yeah. Ker- Kerry Thornley, as I said in that episode, went down a bit of a rabbit hole eventually. Mm-hmm. He had the most bizarre set of coincidences that led to him knowing 
Lee Harvey Oswald. Oh, grassy knoll. Yes, Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah. So there's a very bizarre set of circumstances that led to him knowing him, that guy. In his older years, Kerry Thornley actually ended up believing all of the conspiracies that he actually invented in the first place. Now, Björkvin goes on to say that with regards to those guys, Kerry Thornley, he probably suffered some sort of schizophrenia all his life. And the people close to him hmm. theorized that it was just kept under wraps because of all the acid and all the drugs and all the parties and all the everyone's right. tripping and it's all tune in, drop out and all that kind of thing. So that's how it was kept yeah. under wraps. But then as he got older... Uh, he slowed down a bit and he began to obsess about a lot of conspiracies, including the ones he'd invented. And that was Björkvin's little aside. Very interesting. So interesting. He also goes on to mention that he knows Ken Campbell, who's the famous actor, director, play person. Uh, he's now passed away, but he put the Illuminatus trilogy on as a play. And it was quite groundbreaking at the time in Liverpool, launched the careers of Bill Nighy and I think Jim Broadbent yes. was also in that. Well, his daughter, Daisy, her middle name is Iris, which is name, the name of a character that her mother played in the play. She's a friend oh. of Björkvin. And she also... Oh. Now, I didn't know this, but... Ken Campbell also put on something called the Warp Experience. Now, this is the coincidence coming back around. The Warp Experience was the first 24-hour play, kind of like an immersive experience. That happened, yeah. I think, probably in the 70s. And then again in the 90s, 2000s, I think, if that timeline's correct, Daisy put it on. Daisy, uh, Ken Campbell's Campbell. daughter. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And my friend who got a shout-out at the very beginning of this episode, Vicky, used to work yeah. on that. She was what she was part of the production. Yeah. God, it's a small world, isn't it? Isn't it? So because of that, I have decided to talk a little bit about some popular conspiracy theories and how they end up linking up. Real Ooh, life. Real life. Do you like the sound of that? Absolutely. I just want to let you know that when I researched this, I was looking at things like the bold italic com website wikipedia the evening standard and the financial times weird ft have some great shit anywho we're going to go back now i'm going to ask you and all the eavesdroppers to cast yourselves back to 1977 if you were alive the 16th of august that's six days after my birthday a 42 year old man by the name of elvis presley aka the pelvis he died of an apparent <laughs> heart attack I shouldn't laugh. I'm sure you made me laugh. Well, because he died. Well, he died because he ate too many of those fried cheese sandwiches, which I don't know if you've ever had a Delicious. fried cheese sandwich. It's called a cheese dream. It's so good. Anyway, <laughs> so he died of an apparent heart attack. His girlfriend, Ginger Alden, found him unconscious, lying face down with his dax around his ankles in the master suite lavatory at his Memphis mansion, Graceland. I'm going to Graceland's. Is that Paul Simon? Paul Simon. Memphis, Tennessee. I, it's too low for me. I can't sing it. Oh, anyway, okay. it's a good one. It's a good one. You could transpose it into your own key. I'm going to Graceland. That's nice and high. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, I can't. I can't. We won't. We won't today. So no. it, it appeared as though poor Elvis, who had become constipated through all the drugs and appalling food that you just mentioned, Michelle, had consumed, mm. was desperately straining to get a poo out, which caked we caked. What? <laughs> Wait, that's not what I'm supposed to say. No. <laughs> Wait, desperately straining to get a poo out, which caused him to have a heart attack. Oh. 
which caked him. Oh, God. There is some caking later on. That's I got confused. R.I.P. Elvis. I don't like to laugh at the death of a, a lovely man, and we shouldn't do that. No, Even though he loved not. a very young girl. He liked his girls so young, Michelle. Yeah, that was a bit wrong. He started dating Priscilla Presley. at She was 14. He was 24. Oh, no. Priscilla was barely legal. She wasn't mm. legal. She wasn't. They had to wait till she was like 16 to get married. I'm not yeah. a fan of Elvis, by the way. Controversial. I don't think you have to be a fan to sort of appreciate his role in popular culture. But I, I appreciate that, but I'm not a massive fan. I don't listen to his records. No. His LPs. Listen, Michelle, <laughs> that, that should have been enough for you, really, what I just described. You know, he was pushing, desperately pushing a poo out. He'd eaten all those fried cheese sandwiches. He'd taken all the bloody drugs. Everything was all bunged up. He was having difficulty going to the loo and he pushed really hard. And because he was so medicated, things weren't functioning as they should. The man at 42, which is young, he was overweight. He had a heart attack and he died and it was on the toilet. Do you really think that someone as wonderful as Elvis wants to be remembered like that? Some people think so because they think that he faked it. What, he's on the island with Jimi Hendrix and all that rubbish? But you know how you were saying the fried cheese sandwich is a cheese dream? Mm. That just reminds me, in uh, Switzerland, they've got this thing called a Frauendrauen. Oh, that sounds delicious. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's actually, it's called Lady's Dream. Oh, it's a banana. It's, It's a sausage wrapped in a pastry. So you can't see what I'm doing. Oh, God, Michelle, that's so rude. It's basically a lady's dream. Oh, my God, sex. It's disgusting. It's all about sex. It's a penis in a... In a pastry. Pastry. (laughs) That's what it is. Frauendrauen. Honestly, I couldn't believe that the Swiss who are so uptight about everything, they're like, really? That's in the bakery? Let that all hang out down the bakery. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, as I was just saying, some people think his death was faked and he's in deep witness protection after assisting the FBI to take down mafia kingpins. Oh, my God. Bullshit. I got bullshit. Well, you know, as we all know, Michelle, and we always say it, conspiracy theories usually begin with a grain of fact. And it so happened that Elvis was a big fan of police badges and he'd collect them and he was often given honorary titles to go with them. Oh, okay. So you think he faked his own death to... No, hang on. Let me get there to get an extra badge. No, don't uh, jump. Don't jump the gun. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. And you know what? I, I did say you think. I know yes. you don't actually personally think this. <laughs> I think you might think that I do think that. <laughs> so in December, like we're going to reel back from 77. Now he's going to come away from him, the image of him on the toilet with his trousers I'm imagining that they're white sequin trousers, by the way, round his ankles. No, he's now writing a letter to President Nixon in December 1970, and he's requesting that, could you please make me a federal agent at large? Now, this isn't something that actually exists. It's something that Elvis wants to be, because he's trying to wrangle the biggest and best free badge of all time, an FBI badge. Okay. And with that, he wants a little honorary title. I can't say the word honorary. Honorary title to go with it. And he's decided he wants to be FBI agent at large. Please, Mr. Nixon, I'll have that. Thank you. But that's because famous people think they can do anything. Kinda. So he told Nixon how he was positioned in such a way that the freaks of the day, you know, we're going back to that 70s kind of like freaky deaky time, you know, with their drugs (laughs) and whatnot, that (laughs) whatever they were into, it wasn't Elvis. And they didn't think he was cool, but yet 
Elvis was in the mix enough that he could do some good as an undercover agent. So a meeting Mm. was scheduled and Elvis shows off all his badges to Nixon and expresses his desire to help with the war on drugs. So he asks for a narcotics badge and to be made this honorary agent, federal agent at large. So he's never sworn in and it wasn't legally recognised, but he got his free badge. Then we're going to fast forward again, right? May 1976, Elvis wanted to sell one of his aeroplanes because it was shit. So he got his dad, (laughs) Vernon, to find a buyer and he found a buyer and he got into a really complicated arrangement with this guy because he was an actual fraudster named Frederick Pro, a con man with ties to the mob who had basically swindled Vernon Presley out of the plane and into some dodgy deal that then filtered millions of dollars from the Presley estate. Yeah, right. So he got swindled. The FBI were already looking into Frederick Pro and his conman partner by the name of Kitzer. I couldn't, I couldn't find his first name. When Elvis suddenly died. Now, the actual oh. cause of death has not been proven due to an autopsy report never being released. And the cause of death being a heart attack was declared before an autopsy was even performed, Michelle. So this is looking all a bit dodgy. But... Elvis was known to have a lot of things wrong with him, including diabetes and glaucoma, liver damage, constipation, hence the, the theory that he was straining too hard to get the poo out and had the heart attack doing so. Now I'm going to point to some of the evidence, right? Some say he signed his own medical certificate because the writing on the certificate was eerily similar. But it's just similar handwriting. That's all it is. Then... The National Enquirer showed a picture on the front page of his open casket and it looked weird, like a dummy or something. But all dead people look like like dummies. They don't look like themselves. Precisely. You know. Yeah. So I don't think that's really a thing. Yeah, it's grasping, isn't it? Then mm. 10 pallbearers had issues lifting the 900-pound casket. It was that heavy, Michelle, because, well... People thought it was fitted with a cooling system to stop the wax dummy melting. But that's not oh, what it was. Sake. <laughs> he was it, just fat. Well, he wasn't 900 pounds. But they, he probably had a solid gold casket or something. It shit, was copper. Know. Good guess, Michelle. Oh. You're almost there. It was solid copper. That's the thing. And then there's something with the tombstone. His middle name was spelt. His middle name is Elvis. His name's Aaron. Elvis Aaron Presley, but it was spelt A R O N unlike the traditional spelling like my brother, double A-R-O-N. So in his birth certificate, it was the single A and all the long line of Presley's before him was spelt single A. But he liked it with a double A and even on his marriage certificate, it was more, that's how they spelt it in the Bible. And so it's on his marriage certificate and he wanted it like the Bible. He just thought that it had the single A because his family were dum-dums and they didn't know how to spell. (laughs) Okay. And it could have been. That was Elvis's theory. So Vernon just respected that and put the, the double A on his tombstone. Yeah. Then, of course, Michelle, we've got all the sightings, starting with a flight to Buenos Aires on the day he died. There was a man seen to look exactly like Elvis, travelling under the name of John Burroughs, which happened to be his usual alias. But on deeper inspection, Memphis Airport didn't offer flights to Buenos Aires at the time, and there was no record of that passenger and no credible source. So stick that in your pipe and smoke it. (laughs) You are debunking these left, right and centre. 
Because of all these sightings, that encouraged three Elvis fanatics to create the Elvis Sighting Society in 1989 to monitor them all. 89? In 1989. That's quite a long time after his death. Well, even in 1990, the film, the blockbuster film Home Alone, there's a scene where she's at the airport trying to get back when she realises she's left Macaulay Culkin at home. And there's a man behind her that could be Elvis because he's a big guy. He's got, you know, he's got the facial. Yeah, right. But it wasn't him. It was, it was just an, it was another guy who put his hand up and said, no, that was me. So yeah. why, Michelle, this is where I circle around. Why, Michelle, does it matter to QAnon supporters that Elvis didn't die in 1977? What the fuck has QAnon got to do with all this? It was a big thing. Yes, they were really into it. I was being told that by certain people who have links to QAnon. And it's all because due to shrinking numbers of the QAnon believers, the New Yorker says, now the New Yorker might be making this up, I don't know. But QAnon reached out to both the National Rifle Association and the Elvis is Alive conspiracists in a bid to merge and keep their cult of QAnon alive. Jesus. So the rifles turned them down, but Elvis fans okay. were desperate. So they said, yeah, come on, bring it. Yeah. So we have Harland Dorinson, who is a QAnon spokesman. He announced the new venture at a press conference in January 21 and called it QElvis or Quelvis. I mean, I don't know how you'd say <laughs> <Quel> that. <laughs> okay. So what he said, Dorinson said at the conference was, we are proud to be joining forces with the Elvis conspiracy theory, which has been going strong ever since that fateful day in 1977. When Elvis didn't die. <laughs> There's a line from Men in Black, the film, that says, yeah. Elvis didn't die. He just went home. Aliens. No! I was just trying. My brain was tick, tick, tick. <laughs> I can see. What does that even mean? I can see it wasn't working. Oh, my yes. God. Elvis <laughs> is an alien. Do you know what? It's my favorite go-to. It's like the default. What's going on? Aliens. Aliens. But you're right. Aliens. He just yeah. home. He got beamed up. So according to a study by YouGov and Cambridge University in 2000 and, well, it says 201 here. I'm assuming it's 2021. <laughs> People with populist views are 50% more likely than the general population to believe that there is a secret group that actually controls the world. Now, I just want to explain what populism is because I didn't know what that meant. Do you? No, no, you can explain. Populism is the idea that society is separated into two groups at odds with one another, the pure people and the corrupt elite. That's populism. And nothing in the middle. Nothing in the middle. So populism is quite an extreme thing, I suppose. So we've heard so much about this global elite that run our world. And recently I decided that the whole thing is so shambolic that the elite are probably doing a pretty shit job. If, they, if it is true, don't you think? Yeah, I would say. So, okay, I'm just going to flip forward now from all the 70s and 90s. We're going to be in the year 2000 now where there's a far-right activist and founder of fake news platform Infowars, Alex Jones. Have you heard of him? No. Okay. Well, he was the subject of an episode of John Ronson's series back in the 2000s, Secret Rulers of the World, which I can't find anywhere and I'm desperate to because I love John Ronson. I love everything he does, his podcasts, his radio shows, his TV shows, his films, his books. I think he's great. You know John Ronson? Yeah, I do. I think he's great. He did um, Men Who Stare at Goats and all of that. Yeah. No, he's fantastic. Yeah. So Ronson follows, he, I think it's a few different parts to the series, focusing on different aspects of the shadowy elite. And on this particular episode, he follows the conspiracy theorist Alex Jones as he attempts to infiltrate something I've always been interested in, 
something called Bohemian Grove, which is a campground at Bohemian Avenue in Monte Rio, California, and its privately owned San Francisco-based gentleman's club called the Bohemian Club. Now, this okay. hosts every year, it hosts a two-week-long residential camping kind of thing in mid-July with some of the most prominent men in the world from all areas of business, the arts and politics, and it's really hidden. There's no website, no email contact, no application process, no waiting list for members. It's invitation only, and the fees start at 25 grand a year plus annual dues. So this yearly get-together of dignitaries and business leaders has been rumoured to employ some pretty odd and slightly Masonic practices. And what happens at Bohemian Grove, Michelle? Stays, Stays at Bohemian at Grove. Bohemian Grove. <laughs> it was originally founded by a group of journalists who referred to themselves as Bohemians in the San Francisco Examiner offices in 1872. They wanted their own frat club to talk shop outside the office, so they rented a room on Sacramento Street before building the clubhouse on Post Street, which is still there apparently. And in 1878, membership had expanded to include artists, writers, musicians, and the club acquired some land, which became known as Bohemian Grove. And that's where they hosted their first summer party known as Midsummer Hijinks. That name oh. is now changed. <laughs> the club's message was to celebrate the arts, but was always a little off kilter. And in 1893, there was a play performed by a member called Joseph D. Redding, and it was called Druid Jinx, in which he portrayed Christianity battling and defeating paganism, converting the Druids away from bloody sacrifices and other unchristian acts. And this warning against human sacrifice was so popular amongst the members, they decided to recreate it every year. And it's now called the Cremation of Care. That doesn't even make sense. They're cremating care. They're killing care. I don't care. That's what I think it means. Yeah, maybe. Attendees dress in robes. And as John Ronson reports, past guests include people like Dick Cheney, Henry Kissinger and John Major. It's forbidden to talk shop, but informal lakeside chats on the issues of the day have been given by everyone from Nelson A. Rockefeller to Robert F. Kennedy. So you said some this play was from 1893. So this has been around forever. Yes. This Bohemian Grove. That's what I'm telling you. Yeah, the, I think I missed the bit where it's been around for like more than a century. Like, that's insane. Yeah. It was started by the guys in the newspaper office. Mm. The journalists, yeah. So John Ronson and Alex Jones witnessed the cremation of care. Essentially, it's a sacrifice of a papier-mâché human effigy to a 50-foot high stone owl. And the owl was standing on the opposite side of a lagoon and the effigy was burnt on a fire in front of it. The owl has recorded speech and addresses the party and was once voiced by member Walter Cronkite, who's a famous news anchor, I think, in the States. Yeah. So no expense spared. John says, John Ronson, he says, the effigy was retrieved from the boat by the brazier bearers, held out to the owl's midriff and then thrown by the morning. And I'm talking about morning as in M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, revelry dancers into the fire. So it's all pagan ritual and weird and... Alex Jones is here because they slipped in. They didn't even have to sneak in. They just got dressed up and walked in. No one checked right. their ID, right? Yeah. yeah. They didn't have to break in, which is why Alex Jones probably believes that the ceremony is related to you know the awful occult secret societies and this cabal 
are all behind the world's darkest secrets. That's why he believes it. And he goes around spouting that stuff on his info wars. So while they were there, they met comedy actor and Bohemian Grove attendee, Harry Shearer. Do you know that guy? Footballer? No. No, the um, Simpsons guy. The Simpsons guy, Principal Skinner, Mr. Burns. He was also in A Mighty Wind. He was, I think, the bass player in Spinal Tap. And he describes this event as a glorified frat party, basically. Right. And that's what I think it is. Just a a members club where you can go and let your hair down. And he dismisses what um, Alex Jones thinks of what happens there and points out that the music is supplied by the Symphony Orchestra of San Francisco. Every Republican president since Herbert Hoover has visited the summer camp except for Donald Trump, who was famously NFA, not fucking invited. Sorry, NFI. NFI. NFI, not fucking invited. (laughs) Invited. (laughs) That's another reason in the bag for the far right conspiracists to believe that it's the Mm. devil's work because obviously Jesus Christ reborn, Trump, can't go. Not allowed. He ain't no devil, but he is, but... Or is he? He ain't no devil. So in 1942, J. Robert Oppenheimer, who is the father of the atomic bomb, headed the Manhattan Project planning meeting in the camp clubhouse, which is weird because I just said that they weren't allowed to talk shop, but somehow this was allowed to go ahead. So is it correct? I don't know. And that resulted in the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki three summers later. So it's really like a boys club Boys club. Are women, yeah. But are women allowed? No. None. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Before I tell you mm. that Mark Twain and Jack London were early members and the clientele soon turned into wealthy business figures from San Fran and became a gathering of rich, conservative white men. Men only. This just sounds like another form of Masonic kind of men's club. It is. Clubs. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. Well, when Oscar Wilde visited the camp, he said, I never saw so many well-dressed, well-fed, business-looking bohemians in all my life. <laughs> Women are not allowed full membership at the club. They are, however, allowed recently to attend as guests, but they have to leave by 10 p.m. <laughs> In fact, they weren't even allowed to work there until a court case overturned this as being discriminatory. Where's the DE&I uh, legislation here? Where's their DE&I policy? That would, they would never get away with that exactly. today. So we're not woke. So Alex Jones, having viewed these rich white men going crazy and having a great time pissing on trees and stuff, he was so <laughs> desperately disappointed to find there was no actual child sacrifices taking place. <laughs> oh, but damn it. Nobody died. Nobody died. But it is good to know that our working world leaders get a chance to let their hair down and even make plans for future wars and other major global activities <laughs> while raging around in white robes. Oh, it does sound a bit KKK. <laughs> it's just a party for those guys. Yeah, I, I guess think. it is just a party. Oh, wow. Is it a cult? Is it a conspiracy theory? It's not a is cult. A- there are conspiracies around it because it's secret. So we just have to guess mm. and we're going to go there, aren't we? We're going to go all the way there. And there is an effigy that looks like a child being thrown onto a funeral pyre. But, you know, what about Burning Man? That's basically like effigies all over the shop. That sounds like a cult. No, Burning Man is like... I know what it is. It's a festival. I know exactly. Yeah. It just sounds like you enter and it's all kind of really weird. And I can't imagine what it'd be like. I don't even know if I'd like to go. At one point no, in my life, I did want to. Me too. But it's just not my bag anymore, I don't think. No. 
Great stories. Thank you so much. There's so much to process. I need to like look into all of that stuff because it sounds absolutely fascinating. Thanks, Michelle. I stumbled across this crazy trial that was happening in New York last month. And with every paragraph that I was reading about it, it just got more and more bizarre. And, you know, we are talking brainwashing, conspiracies, sex trafficking, extortion, torture, coercive control. Oh, my God. The full gamut or... Gamut. Gamut. It's a gamut. It's a full gamut. Oh, my Um, God. This all began back in April 2019 when the New York Magazine published a really disturbing article about the father of a student at Sarah Lawrence College in Yonkers, New York. Bloody Yonkers again. about Yonkers, yeah, just last week. It's just coming up. Berkowitz. And Untermeyer Park with the satanic witch's little pump house there. Well, look, maybe something's going on in Yonkers because there was, like I said, father of this student at this fancy college who basically had this group of students under his spell and the article the father did yes it this it gets weirder this is why you're reading it reading it going what and this article really does inform so much of the research for my story today and I will put links in the show notes but this article went on to outline this bizarre story of a guy called Larry Ray his daughter Talia and basically the manipulation of all her friends. And I'm warning you now, trigger warning, it does get dark. I'm thinking American Beauty already. No. Think Keith Ranieri. Oh, my God. Yes. And even a little bit like Ghislaine Maxwell and that whole thing too. Like it's, it's not good. The New York Magazine expose was called Larry Ray and the Stolen Kids of Sarah Lawrence. Jesus. And this article triggered an FBI investigation leading to Larry's arrest in February 2020. But I'm going to – I'll back up and start by yeah. saying that Sarah Lawrence College is a super wealthy private college. You had to be wealthy pretty much to go there or on a scholarship. So we're talking mainly like upper middle class kids. The college specialises in liberal arts. I didn't even know what that meant. Uh, So I had to look it up and that basically means a little bit like an arts degree in Australia. So history, literature, writing, philosophy, sociology, psychology, that kind of thing. The groovy stuff. The cool stuff. The fun stuff that you can't get a job from. Mm. And uh, (laughs) so just setting the scene, in late September 2010, at the beginning of the sophomore year for these students, which means they were all around 18 or 19 – This girl, Talia Ray, she, like everyone knew about her because she was always banging on about her dad, Larry. And she was like, oh, my dad, he's a truth teller. He's been silenced by powerful, vindictive men in the government. And he's been sent to prison for trying to save Talia and her younger sister from the abuse of their mother. And -hmm. that he was thrown into jail because of government corruption. So, in September 2010, Talia 
told her housemates, hey, my dad's getting out of prison and he's going to crash with us. Oh, shit. They were staying in like a, a dorm house on campus, on campus at Sarah Lawrence. And these kids who, I say kids, 18 or 19, like, you know, young adults. Yeah. They were down with it because they're like, oh, Talia's cool and yeah, you know, oh, her dad's getting out of prison and he's been manipulated by the government and whatever. So 50-year-old Ray gets fresh out of jail, moves into his daughter's room on campus and that's mm. where this, this whole shit show starts, right? Oh, God. Yeah, okay. At first, the other seven students in Talia's dorm thought it was absolutely fucking great having Larry Larry there because he was doing all the cleaning, he was cooking fancy steak dinners for them, he was ordering expensive like takeout for everyone and, you know, he'd organise these dinners where they'd all sit around a table and while they ate, he would tell them all these stories about how he'd been a government agent He'd been an international CIA operative, how he had like recovered these missiles off the black market for the American government. He'd organized a ceasefire in Kosovo. He knew all Mm. these high-ranking government officials. And he was just going on and on and on about how he was framed. And apparently he was charming. He was a good listener. He would talk to all of the housemates about truth and justice. And he'd organize these movie nights with all these intellectual documentaries. So they were like fully into it, except bit by bit, Larry was becoming more and more controlling. And these kids who were living with Talia, you know, they were kind of vulnerable, damaged kids because apparently the investigation into all of this shit revealed that pretty much all of the all of the students living with Talia had at some point tried to commit suicide before going to college so you know they were all kind of fucked up and they all were going through different issues like one when Larry had moved in was going through a really bad breakup another guy was struggling with his sexuality so they were all a bit fragile and they were all a bit lost and and Larry was there kind of like you know I can help you and he was saying to them that he can teach them you know techniques about how to discipline their mind using training that he'd used when you know he'd been employed by the government and and even though he had absolutely no qualifications as like a counselor or a therapist he began counseling I'm doing inverted commas here Talia's roommates including this girl called Isabella who was Talia's best friend again like she's 19 Mm-hmm. Eventually, Larry started sleeping in Isabella's room. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. And and the thing is, he's so smart because she's an adult. She's old enough to make her own decisions. So, you know, it's fucking creepy. Mm-hmm. Then in December 2010, the night before uh, Isabella was meant to go home to her parents' house for winter break, Larry called her family and told Isabella's mother that... Isabella had been sexually abused as a child by a family friend and that if Isabella was to go home for winter break, she was going to commit suicide. Oh so, gosh. and that the only way for, to save their daughter, Isabella had to stay with Larry over the winter break. So Isabella didn't go home and Isabella, Larry, T- 
Talia and Talia's then boyfriend ended up renting an apartment in New York and it was one bedroom. Talia and the boyfriend slept in the living room. Isabella and Larry were in the bedroom and Talia's then boyfriend says that during that winter break, Larry controlled every aspect of their lives once they were in that apartment. What they ate, when they ate, what they did, when they went to bed, even to the point where Larry told Talia's boyfriend he needed to stop taking his like anti-psychotic medication. Hmm. That sounds terrifying in itself. Yeah. But I mean, he didn't. And after the winter break ended, he broke up with Talia because he was so freaked out by Larry. But not all the friends saw through Larry. And when college went back, Larry moved back into the dorm room. Oh, gee whiz. Yeah. With Isabella. And pretty soon, like, he started doing these one-on-one counselling sessions to help Talia's friends work through their issues. And the other housemates, like, they were all getting drawn into this. And there was this one girl called Claudia and a guy called Daniel and another lad called Santos. And they were really, like, into what Larry was teaching them through these sessions. Mm. And because Larry was there saying, you know, these sessions are going to give you clarity on your lives and... You know, they were just reeled in and bit by bit, person by person, just like Keith Ranieri, Larry was building his cult and he used classic cult tactics. So he would do these personal transformations where everyone who lived in that house would gather together for these like marathon discussions where the group would just interrogate one person and this one person would usually be singled out because they'd made mistakes or done something wrong to Larry or damaged something of his like they'd broken a plate or you know scratched a frying pan or something this is horrifying Michelle it is and it it gets crazier Larry said all of these things like were being damaged were intentional manifestations of childhood trauma And the personal, like the purpose of the group sessions were to really reveal what those um, traumas were and the personal truths that they had. And they would end in breakthroughs if they worked through it. And Mm. the sessions were not allowed to end until you had a breakthrough, which could be all night. So they were all sleep deprived and exhausted. Classic cult. Classic. Tactic. And then, but Larry was never exhausted because he was fucking hooked on amphetamines so he was just going 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 and you know he was always alert always in control you know there was one girl and this has so many shades of Ranieri about it and Nixium he was urging her to eat healthy so then she became really obsessed with her weight and losing weight and he bit by bit he was controlling her as well Mm And, and look, just going back a bit to the housemates and this idea of them making mistakes, Larry would say that these mistakes or things that they broke or damaged weren't just symbols of childhood trauma, but they were acts of sabotage against him. And he made them write confessions about how and why they had sabotaged him. And, and look, to me, he was saving all of these written confessions a little bit like when we did Nixium. Keith, Ran- Keith Ranieri made everyone say all these fake lies for collateral. 
you know, it's just psychological conditioning really as well because he was making them believe they'd actually done horrible things to Larry and his family when they hadn't, poisoning or whatever it was. So because of this harming him supposedly or you broke something of mine or you tried to hurt my family member, he said they had to pay, literally pay money as restitution. Here we go. He's got the sex. He's got the control. Now he needs some money. Yep. And so he was like, you have to pay back your debt to me because you broke this. You tried to harm me. So Mm. these kids were so brainwashed. They thought they had to like pay money to him to like make amends. And, you know, it was, it, it, it just got out of control to the point where we talked about this guy Santos earlier, just that he was really one of his disciples in a way. He went to his family and begged for money and, and he gave Larry over 100000 nearly bankrupting his family. So, you know, it's just – but you're right. It's not just about the money. The money was never enough. It's control. You know, of course, like we you just talked about, any good cult has weird sex stuff. And Daniel was a guy who was living in that house who thought he might be gay. And he was made to have regular sex sessions with Isabella – who Larry was supposedly with in front of Larry and another oh. guy and Larry would sometimes join in oh my for the God. coaching. Yeah. You know, I, I'd read this quote from Daniel about it where he said he didn't leave. He kind of thought it was a bit weird but when all of this weird sex stuff was going on and Larry's watching and whatever, this is his quote. He says, it was a combination of feeling like this is unusual and I feel kind of weird. But my immediate next thought was, everyone else seems to think this is really good. Maybe there's something wrong with me and I need to lean into this. Mm. So already he, his mind is not working and functioning properly. And things just kept getting weirder and weirder. And honestly, to go into all of this, this could be like a 10-part podcast because <laughs> Larry's background is fucking insane. Even, you know, before I talked to you about how he would tell them all about, oh, you know, I'm with the CIA. Well, he was making up these stories about Giuliani in New York, who was the um, the mayor. ex-mayor. Um, conspiracy theories against him because of his ties to military and government and secrets and Russia. Thing is, there is actually a grain of truth in all this because he really did know people in government and he did have friends in high places. He really was an FBI informant. Really? Yes. And in 1995, Larry met a guy called Bernie Kerrick, who was an NYPD um, officer who had risen the ranks under Mayor Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani, to become Giuliani's driver. He then got promoted to being the director of the corrections department in New York. And Larry was best man at Bernie's wedding. Larry even drove Mikhail Gorbachev around on a trip to New York and he did travel to Kosovo and he did organise like buying of missiles and he was even a bodyguard for Donald Trump in 2015. So this guy does have grains of truth to all this shit that he's spouting. But thing was, when he was an FBI informant, he actually embezzled money because he was meant to be informing on the mafia. But basically, 
he was in cahoots with the mafia and tricked the FBI into like covering up a scam that he was involved with. And then he got busted and he got sent to prison for that. He also was like arrested for trying to suffocate his then girlfriend. Oh. Um, yeah. And, you know, he fabricated all of this shit about Talia's mother and his ex-wife saying that she sexually abused the kids. And, you know, thankfully when it went to court, it did get thrown out. But I read this really eerie thing um, of one of the court psychologists who had tried to evaluate Larry. And they said it was literally impossible to evaluate him because he is able to manipulate and control almost any situation in which he finds himself, including a psychological interview with a forensic examiner. No matter how experienced that examiner may be, Larry was able to get around it. And it said, Mr. Ray is very good at what he does. And (laughs) the report went on to say that he can be utterly charming and you can be disarmed by his childlike simplicity, but he is no child. He's calculating, manipulative and hostile. So we're basically dealing with a master manipulator. And it's really sad because there's a lot in the trial where the parents came out and said, look, we were freaking out. We knew this guy, Larry, was a really bad influence on our kids, but they couldn't do anything because they tried. They tried talking to their kids. They went to the police to see what they could do legally. But because they were all over 18, they couldn't do anything. They felt really helpless. Yeah, you know, these poor parents, you've really got to feel for them because they were literally unable to pull their kids away from the influence of this guy. And there's a quote in the New York Magazine article where it said, and this is from, this is about Claudia, who is, is you know, one of the girls in the, in the house. It said, one weekend night, Claudia showed up at her parents' apartment with Larry and began asking about her mother's first child a girl who had died at birth. And Larry said it must have been difficult for her to love Claudia having just gotten over the loss. And Claudia's mum says, I looked at him and I said, what are you talking about? When Claudia was born, it was the joy of my life. Claudia was everything to me. I had a daughter and I was so happy. And then the mother says, Larry dug in until I just exploded crying. He was trying to break us down. And Claudia was on Larry's team and her father and I were on another team. And she said, I don't believe you, mum. I don't believe you could have loved me because of her. And then Claudia left with Larry and the mum says, that's when we knew he had total control over her. Look, you know, you're a parent. I don't know how you would feel when you just know you're so helpless and you cannot help your kids. Heartbreaking. I couldn't bear it. But you must also feel like, how can we get our kid out of this? I mean, do you remember we saw there was that famous woman, well, not Wonder Woman, she was in one of those Dallas or something. Do you remember she was part of the Nixium mothers who tried to get their kids out of the cult? And Catherine Oxenberg, Dynasty. That's right, Dynasty. Yeah, I mean, it was heartbreaking. But anyway, it really, I mean, this guy really did control these students and it got worse. And, and like I said before, a bit like the Nixium sex cult and even like Jeffrey Epstein, it came out during the trial last month that Larry forced Claudia into prostitution so oh she could pay goodness. Larry. Yeah. And, he, and she did it because 
uh, she had to pay back Larry $2.5 in, in compensation for things Claudia had broken or damaged or had done to Larry. And she had to pay him back in money. Because Larry apparently had kind of brainwashed her and convinced her into believing that she had poisoned him. And to make amends, she had to give him compensation. So he just pimped her out as a sex worker to pay. Yeah. And look, over four years, she actually did give Larry $2.5 million. I mean, she's fucking, she must have been exhausted, I'm telling you. That's like between 10,000 and 50,000 a week, you know. She must have been trapped in a room just nonstop. Poor thing. That's terrible. And she said that as well as um, the forced prostitution, he would torture her for <gasps> hours. Trigger warning. Trigger warning. Trigger warning. And he did things like strapped her to a hotel chair, choked her with a leash, put a plastic bag over her head and tried oh, to suffocate no. her. And the thing is that he thought so little of these students, these kids, these girls, that he was suffocating her and he he was like ordering burger and fries at the same time. Oh, my God. This, it's like the worst film you've ever seen. This is terrible. Really awful. And there was another girl um, and she was a Harvard Medical School graduate and her name was Felicia Rosario. She was actually the sister of Santos that we mentioned earlier. And at the trial, she testified that after her brother Santos introduced her to Larry, she became his girlfriend and he would make her do things like have sex with strangers in Walmart or Home Depot and that he really wanted her to start like doing sex work to bring in the money. So it was just horrible. He's like the worst, most horrifying pimp of all time with his own cult. Yeah. And and Isabella, who we talked about earlier, who he made, you know, have sex with Daniel um, yeah. and he would join in. And Daniel, by the way, and trigger warning on this, he uh, would torture Daniel as well by oh dear. basically garroting his balls with plastic and aluminium wire. Oh, my God. Isabella said that Larry would tie her up with like zip ties he would bind her ankles and wrists and then he would punch her in the face that's awful how awful and so look like i said at the top of the story this you know the new york magazine article sparked an fbi investigation and the trial during the trial claudia and isabella and daniel all got up and said that you know right at the beginning when he had moved into talia's room after getting out of jail Everything started from a place of trust. It then Mm. moved into sex or romance and then into years of violent sexual abuse and just torture and abuse. You know, because we are all used to, you know, reading articles and watching films about cults where, you know, leaders use control and manipulation and coercion and sleep deprivation and isolation and all that kind of stuff and humiliation to control an entire group. But in Mm. this case... This cult was so tiny and it was in plain sight. And sometimes it was just a cult of two, Larry and someone else. And yeah. that's what I find so fucking scary here because Larry was manipulating adults over the age of consent. Nothing family can do. He did it on a school campus 
in New York, not even in some fucking farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. And it has all the hallmarks of like an abusive marriage, you know. Mm. He Mm. manipulated and controlled one-on-one. And that is something that anyone can fall into, you know. You don't even know you're in a cult, but it is it is a cult. And look, last month, Larry pleaded not guilty to 15 charges against him, which included financial crimes, sex trafficking, violent crime, racketeering, all sorts of shit. But after only a few hours of deliberation, the jury did find Larry guilty on all 15 counts. Okay. Yeah. And in a statement... A U.S. attorney called Damien Williams said that Larry basically had changed this group of friends who had their whole lives ahead of them. For a decade, he used violence, threats and psychological abuse to try and control and destroy their lives. And, you know, that he terrorized them. He exploited them. And he said, let me be very clear, Larry Ray is a predator. He's an evil man who did evil things. And today's verdict finally brings him to justice. The thing is that he's been found guilty, but he hasn't been sentenced yet. That is going to happen on September 16 of this year. And he does have the possibility of facing life in prison. So I will keep you all up to date on the Larry Ray case. But that is my story for today. Horrific. Horrific. Thank you, Michelle. Oh, it is horrific and so scary. So I'm sorry if anyone is <laughs> terrified about their, you know, teenage children going off to college. Because mm. there's not there's not enough to worry about already, you see. So <laughs> let's add some particularly manipulative predators into the mix, shall we? Oh, God, I'm sorry. God, that's really terrible. Okay, <laughs> we, we, we need to do a happy episode soon. Yes. Well, you know, we are, people are just eavesdropping here. We're just chit-chatting. That's what you do. This is what happens when we get together and we talk about things, Mish, I suppose. I mean, I had no idea. I'd never heard about it before. It's really new. I mean, like I said, the trial just was a few weeks ago, so... You know, it's really, really current and um, mm. and scary. And upper middle class kids with from wealthy backgrounds yeah. in a really super posh private college. In plain sight as well. Gosh, okay. Thanks, Michelle. Listen, thank you for showing up today with that fabulous, well, I'm not going to call it a fabulous story, with that story of a cautionary tale almost, really. I mean, those people are out there. You just never know when you're going to meet someone who presents so well and trusting and seems so nice and has people vouching for him. And Mm -hmm. then you find out that too late often that you've been drawn into a cult where he sends you out to work as a sex worker and tortures you and you, and you stay and you put up with it for whatever reason. I mean, we're not blaming, we're not victim blaming. No, but their minds have been so broken down and so destroyed. They, you know, it's cult. It, they've been brainwashed and, yeah. it, you know, it's absolutely horrific. But I want to say thank you to you for Elvis. Thanks for bringing Elvis. Elvis back alive. I brought him and back. And saying poo probably about seven times. We always need that. Absolutely. I will I will apologise to Natty J. She doesn't like the poo talk, but... We didn't get too descriptive, no, did we? No, Or maybe we did. No. <laughs> 
Okay, Mish. Well, this is it where we say our farewells to the gang out there, our eavesdroppers. And we have to remind you, of course, that (laughs) wherever you are, whatever whatever you you do, do, just keep keep eavesdropping. 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 Eavesdropping.